This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... I got a charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? Uh, hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Hello there. It's Jamila Jamel. Take a deep breath. Let your breath out slowly to the count of six. One, two, three, four, five, six. Do you feel better? Well, on my podcast, I Weigh, this month we'll be exploring ways to tackle mental health and feel better with guests like Simon Sinek from The Optimism Company, therapist Vienna Farron, comedian Neil Brennan, and many more. Listen to I Weigh wherever you get your podcasts. The year is 1954. Stuck inside your house with nothing to do? <laughs> Only in movies. The film, Rear Window. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Unspooled. Unspooled. That tiny delay we have is because Paul and I are recording a quick session, instant film, which we'll talk about in a second, that we just decided to record yesterday for this week's episode, and we're in different rooms. Paul, I'm watching That's him right. on a giant TV. I'm in the studio with my very, very clean studio, my very, very lovely, clean Devin, Devin and Josh, with microphone spritzer in my hand, Lysol wipes everywhere, and Paul on a TV set calling in. Hi. Yes, hi. I am um, uh, right now uh, basically uh, taking part in social distancing, and I have a family, and we've decided to close our circle, so we have not gone out uh, of the house. So I am literally in the Jimmy Stewart position for Rear Window, which is a movie we're talking about today, and the movie that so many people said we should talk about. Uh, and, you know, this is a podcast where we are talking about films on the AFI Top 100 list, and sometimes, and I say, Amy, we've been doing this for a while. Every time we pick a movie, it kind of comes into the public consciousness in some level. And this way, we tried to uh, we tried to flip the switch. We kind of brought it up to make sure that we could talk about the topicality of it. Um, but I couldn't tell you how excited I was to talk about it because even in these couple of days that um, we've been a little quarantined and we're quarantined and we're healthy and we're fine, uh, we're just trying to do our part, uh, was this movie just became more fascinating to me because you start to look at people on Instagram and you look at, uh, you know, people walking by your window. I've, you know, I saw people, a lot more people are on walks in my neighborhood and you start to, you know, what are they doing? Where do they live? I haven't seen them before. And I just got really into the spirit of this film. Um, and I can't wait to talk to you about it. I love it. I'd like to give a quick shout out to the, uh, Two mariachis who were walking down my street at a respectful distance from houses today playing music for people. It was really Oh, nice. that's lovely. Yeah, I ran I, to I my can't... window. I was so happy. 
I can't tell you how upsetting it is to be walking with my two children and watch people cross the street because of us. It's the closest I'll ever come to feeling, uh, you know, uh, you know, left out by society. It's like, obviously they're doing it for the right reasons, but just to see people just like avoid you, like I must get on the other side of the street now. It's a, it's a, it's a weird time that we're in, but we are going to take your mind off of that now. Um, and by the way, uh, I have Amy uh, doing, you know, my small part and not only am I staying inside my closed circle, uh, but I am also uh, trying to give people recommendations of cool things to watch while they're in this uh, this zone. I'm doing this texting thing. I have this like text app thing where people can text me. And I'm trying to give a recommendation a day on that. So if you want to join in on that, there are going to be movies from all over the place, uh, movies and books and TV shows. You should definitely do that. And uh, I would love to hear from all of you. But Amy, before we hear from anybody else, let's hear from everybody last week who wanted to talk about Sunrise. Um, such a fun episode. I feel like people really were excited about this episode and um, that other film that we did, The Best Years of Our Lives, as as being films that really kind of excited them uh, that they found or, or feel passionate about. I know people were so happy to see Sunrise, which made me so happy. I think there's like this contagious joy that I have with Sunrise where other people love it and you love it. And then people are tweeting yeah. that they love it. It's like a gazillion sunbeams hitting my poor reclusive house right now. And I, <laughs> I love it so much. I love it so much. Um, like, I'll give a shout out to uh, Lewis Camera, who said, this is one of my favorite movies of all time. And over the last 10 years, I've screened it six times to six different audiences of college students. The class has between 100 and 125 students, most of them freshmen who have never seen a silent film. And every single time, the students have been so drawn into the movie. It's energy, inventiveness, emotion. They have given it an ovation at the end. My God, that cures like everything in my body right now. That is beautiful. Thank you, Professor Camera. Well, I want to bring a, a question up to you because I don't know if I'm uh, actually able to answer it, but Caroline Ryle uh, says it definitely belongs on the list, easily in the top 20, maybe top 10. I totally agree with you, Caroline. Uh, but two things. Did anyone else think the wife's hat looked like a giant brain? Um, I did not pick that up, but I don't dispute it. And, oh my God, uh, was anyone Mars else... Attacks. Can you imagine if Janet Gaynor uh, was in Mars Attacks? Oh my gosh. <laughs> Sorry. Like that. And uh, was anyone else shocked that Paul and Amy didn't make the comparison to A Place in the Sun? I've never seen Sunrise before, and I couldn't believe the similarities between the two films in regard to the murder by capsized boat plot. I have not seen uh, A Place in the Sun. Have you? I have, but I hadn't made that connection, so I really appreciate that Caroline made it. I mean, that's the movie where a guy is so in love with Elizabeth Taylor that he's willing to kill his girlfriend for her in a boat. And it's, it's, uh, I haven't seen it since I was in college. But it By is, the way, Amy, yeah. we're we're kind of we're kind of cracking open a new theme on the show because today's episode is also about a man who uh, is killing for his mistress. Uh, uh, a Guys, topic that never gets old. Keep those boats and knives in your pants. People also brought up the an interesting and depressing fact about uh, Murnau and Janet Gaynor. Eerily, they both died from injuries sustained in car accidents. Murnau died the next day, and Gaynor died two years later from complications from injuries sustained in her crash. So. Uh, tragic ends to these people, but we talked about all the close hits and, or I said near misses in Sunrise with cars. Uh, just uh, kind of not a funny coincidence, but just a an interesting one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was brought to our attention by Gary Only. And I had read that, like, Murnau, 
He his driver was 14 years old for some reason, and I think ran him off the oh, road wow. driving up the 101 here in California. And Janet very came, uh, a, a very and, short round relationship with their driver from Indiana Jones and Temple of Doom. Exactly, put the little blocks on his feet. And um, um, Janet was um, <laughs> Janet was hit in San Francisco when she was um, old. It was a couple of years. It was right after that Oscar clip that we played mm. of her. Oh wow! Yeah, oh, that's so sad. Well, you know, Amy, uh, some people are quarantining themselves. Uh, the Bay Area is uh, taking shelter. Uh, New York is closed down. Schools are out. And people are watching movies, like I said. Uh, so we wanted to see what movie people would watch. And I guess this is now a reality. Uh, what movie would you watch if you could only pick one movie to have in your uh, potential uh you know, shelter or your, uh, your lock-in. I mean, what would you, what would you pick? And this is what, uh, what people said. If I was stuck, uh, with only one movie for a month, I would pick the brand new criterion release of Vim vendors until the end of the world, the nearly five hour director's cut. Um, not only is it thematically relevant, but it's long, and it's got a great, great, one of the best ever soundtracks. I'd either go with a long movie that I haven't seen, like the Decalogue, or I'd go with a childhood favorite that I know by heart, uh, like uh, The Sandlot. If I had to be stuck inside with only one movie for a month, I would pick the right stuff. It's a gorgeous movie. It's got memorable lines. And it's long, so it could fill more hours than uh, than most movies. Amy, I got to say, I disagree with all of these picks. I would never have picked any of these movies. They seem depressing. They don't seem fun. I don't think that we should be judging movies by length. To me, I think a movie that you would want to have is a movie that you could rewatch over and over again. Like, you know, something that is, I would hope, potentially a comedy, uh, you know, or something that's so beautiful to look at. But it's like, I love 2001, but I, I don't know if I could like watch it over and over and over and over again. I, I think I would go with a straight up, comedy i mean what about you i think i would go with the princess bride because that is mm. you know an everything film to me it's like romance yeah. thrills adventure drama like you can get misty you could raw at the screen it's basically the best thing of every movie combined into one movie Ooh, i love that pick um i definitely feel like i would pick a john hughes movie and i'm just gonna go really boldly and say planes trains and automobiles i don't know why that's the one that's coming into my head right now but it just feels like I want to get out so I get to see some of the world. I get that misty thing with John Candy. I get to see two of my favorite uh, comedians just kind of killing it in their prime. And you get to see Edie McClurg say the word fuck. So, I mean, and also Steve Martin. You don't see Steve Martin say the word fuck that many times. And I, so uh, I, I'm all on board. I don't know. That's my pick for today. Uh, we will see uh, how that holds up in, in theory. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, and by the way, Amy, as we are talking, um, movie theaters are shut down. Restaurants are being advised to close. Bars are being closed. But that does affect us, besides the fact that I am not with you. But it affects our Alamo show. Um, that is right now canceled because movie theaters in L.A. are um, are closed down. We can't have groupings of over 10. But maybe we'll do something fun in the interim. I don't know what that will be. We have to still kind of figure out tech-wise what we can do. But maybe we could do something fun in the interim. Yeah, who knows what's going to happen tech-wise? I mean... People probably maybe just saw the news. I just saw it myself that 
Uh, Universal is going to show movies like The Hunt and Emma. I'm so excited. I saw The Hunt. It's really surprising and good. There's it does. I saw not your the film you think it, it is. Yeah. Oh my god, the lead actress in it, uh, Betty Gilpin. Oh, <gasps> she's fucking great. So you know, if you By want the to way, see The Hunt, I actually really loved it. It's fun. I'm glad people are going to get to see I've it. I heard, was so sad <laughs> that it, people. No, weren't. I heard it's so good. And but this movie has been kind of plagued with disasters every single time. Even now, it gets out. It comes back in. Uh, you know, immediately. But I, I hope that this movie sets a trend because we all are dying for entertainment. And I'm excited to see Invisible Man. Have you seen Invisible Man? I have. Seen Invisible Man. I have seen Invisible Man, and I'm excited for not a to catch full-throated endorsement. Oh well, <laughs> not a full I could say something. I am. All right, it starts off All right. amazing. Hey. It starts uh, off amazing. I will say that about. Okay. You. All right. Well, then I would like to. I mean, I can't wait for Emma as well. This is exciting. I mean, well, look in in the context of the situation, it's exciting that movie theaters are stepping up to the plate, and I, I have to give a big uh, tip of the hat to Amy's favorite company, Disney who not only released uh, Frozen 2 early, but also Star Wars early. I think all of these things make a big difference when we all are kind of stuck somewhere. And if you have streaming, uh, it just gives you just a little bit of a highlight, especially as somebody who's taking care of a five-year-old and a three-year-old. To get some more options on the table, make it seem fresh and fun is lovely. Your kids are going to absolutely love melancholy when you get to that part of this. I can't wait. (laughs) Oh, gosh. I'm already depressed thinking about it. Amy, um, let's talk about being a voyeur in a little film called Rear Window. Let's unspool it. The year is 1954. The discovery of a polio vaccine leads to the first mass vaccination of American children. Ellis Island closes as a point of immigration. The number of in-home television sets more than doubles from the previous year. Children are rocking a Davy Crockett coonskin cap. Swanson's introduces the TV frozen dinner. Audiences are watching 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, White Christmas, On the Waterfront, and today's film, Rear Window. It ranks number 48 on the AFI list, down a bit since its ranking of 42 on the previous list. Um, Amy, let's uh, watch a clip. Amy, let's listen to a clip. You mean to say you can explain everything that's gone on over there and is still going on? No, neither can you. That's a secret private world you're looking into out there. People do a lot of things in private they couldn't possibly explain in public. Like disposing of their wives. Get that idea out of your mind. It'll only lead in the wrong direction. What about the knife and the saw? Did you ever own a saw? What? At home in the garage, I had... How many people did you cut up with? All of the couple of hundred knives you probably own in your lifetime. Okay, Amy, who's in it? What's it about? Rear window! It is directed by our buddy Alfred Hitchcock. This is the fourth of his films we've talked about on this list. It stars the one and only, legendary for many reasons, Jimmy Stewart as LB Jeff Jeffries. He is a world-traveling adventure photographer stuck at home in his Greenwich Village apartment with a broken leg, visited by a few magical angels, one of them being Thelma Ritter as Stella. She's his nurse. We saw her before. She was Birdie in All About Eve. Also, Grace Kelly, the perfect, beautiful, breathtaking Grace Kelly as his sort of on-again, off-again girlfriend, Lisa. Meanwhile, he stares out of his window, watches the entire neighborhood and their dramas unfold, and becomes convinced that his neighbor right across the way, the Mr. Thorwald, played by Raymond Burr, has murdered his wife. But how will he prove it when he is stuck inside? And a couple interesting things about Rear Window, just to kind of, you know, frame it in this entire list that we're talking about. This is Hitchcock's 42nd film he ever made. 
counting all the way back to the silence, it's his 17th American film that he's ever made, and yet it is the first one of his films chronologically on the list. Because we've done Vertigo, we did North by Northwest, and we did Psycho. Those all came after Rear Window. So, so much of his career has already gone by by this point where he makes one of his bazillions of masterpieces. I think he had a bunch of bazillions of masterpieces before this, too. This is a Hitchcock movie that I absolutely love. But now seeing it after Vertigo, it feels shockingly similar to me. Does it feel similar at all to you? Are you talking about in terms of, say, a very obsessive male and the beautiful blonde in his life? Yeah, I mean, even more than that, in the sense that here's a, a, an obsessive male who is injured on some level, uh, can't perform a duty. And uh, in this movie, he can't walk, can't leave his apartment. Uh, in Vertigo, he has this uh, fear of heights that gives him uh, vertigo. Uh, he becomes obsessed with a woman, uh, and he puts a lot of on this woman and what's going on around her much to dismay of a woman in his life that very much wants him but he you know he kind of is not interested in her and he comes around on it but there are so many similarities and i started to think like wow these themes of hitchcock with beautiful women coming into these men's lives we talked about this in psycho too and i i just started to see this like weird uh trend within hitchcock films no you're right because even even in Psycho, so much of that film is about a man spying on women and like voyeurism, yes. people like looking at things they're not supposed to be seeing while Hitchcock is looking at those things for us through a camera and saying, how do you feel about being in the eyes of somebody who always is staring at what he shouldn't be? Yeah, this movie is, and all of Hitchcock's movies are a little pervy. And I don't mean that like in a bad way, but they have that sense of voyeurism this one's out and out voyeurism but that they all have that i'm spying i'm following i'm obsessed with it's a very interesting theme yeah no i agree and i was thinking you know that what i really like about rear window i mean this is probably if i'm thinking about as a kid learning who hitchcock was Rear window might have been my gateway because it's the simplest one. You're like, you're a guy, yes. you're staring out the window. I'm a latchkey only child. So the idea of staring out your window and being really bored, absolutely understand it. I've always understood this feeling of being like, what do I get? What do I do here? I am the same way. I am a latchkey kid. I have spent many a day just fantasizing about something going on, trying to get into my neighbor's backyard. I was desperate to get in my neighbor's backyard. They were doing nothing, but I just thought, oh, if I could just go there, what, what, what's going on there? They had a big fence, and I just wanted to get on the other side of that fence. <laughs> so I'd shoot bow and arrows over it and then have to like be like, I, I don't know if they're home. Maybe I could just go in their backyard and get my, bow, my arrow. Uh, but it was, I remember just that idea of like, what is behind the closed door? And, and this movie does such a great job of like, basically just showing you all these lives. It does a beautiful job of that. Yeah, you know, what I was really thinking watching Rear Window this time is what a humanist film this is. You know, mm. I, I think like years ago, I would have said, Rear Window, I don't quite get why Grace Kelly likes him. Do you know? I think that was like right. me, me figuring out how to get inside the brain of Hitchcock. Because that was a problem that I think I had a little bit with Vertigo is I didn't totally buy why the second, why the reincarnation of her with the brown hair liked Jimmy Stewart that much. But Rear Window, it suddenly clicked into place for me 
Absolutely. Like, when you have a woman as perfect as Grace Kelly trying to get Jimmy Stewart's attention away from staring out his window, a woman who is on paper the most flawless person probably ever put onto film. I mean, let's go through it. She's a supermodel. She's incredibly beautiful. She adores him to pieces. She's willing to bring over dinner from the fanciest restaurant in town and make it a lobster with a waiter. Like, here is a woman who is as perfect as you can get on paper. She's also funny, smart, adventurous. And the fact that he can't pay attention to her is never supposed to be realistic. It's supposed to be this neon sign pointing your attention to the question that Hitchcock is asking, which is, how crazy is this man? What is wrong with him? Can I take one moment here just to talk about Grace Kelly, who I think is obviously stunning and positioned to be the coolest person in the world. But we just hear that she's cool. Like, she very rarely shows us that she is, like, this amazing person, in my opinion. I feel like, what what does she do that, I mean, besides bring in takeout? I mean, she she does do cool stuff at the end. She's adventurous at the end. But the whole movie, we're hearing about how she's this. But I think the movie rides a lot on the fact that she's just insanely gorgeous. No way. She has such a sense of humor. The way she parries him, deals with his emotions. She's so intelligent in all of her scenes. The way that she gets him, I think, even though he tries to push her back. And she's not like crazy stalkery about it. She's not like, you push me back, but I'm going to make you love me. She's not that internet meme of the girl with the crazy eyes. Apologize to the girl with crazy eyes. But um, she is just big hearted and brave and funny and wonderful and and so exaggerated. I mean, the idea that she's going to show up to his house wearing like an $11,000 or $1,100 dress just to amuse him on a on a Wednesday night. Like this, she right. does not exist in the real world. But I think there's something in her that as perfect as she seems on paper, Grace Kelly makes her feel like an, a living, beautiful, sexual person. She is real because of the way that Grace plays her. And oh my God, Absolutely. I'm so I- in love with her. I mean, I have to agree. I think that she does feel like a character that you want to spend more time with. There was a point in the film, though, for me. And as you're saying it, I think I'm not going to like hang my hat on this too much. But I felt like she does such an amazing job carrying the character that it's it's almost Grace Kelly being awesome instead of the writing being like, wow, you created this amazing character. That's kind of what I was getting at. I no, think. yeah, I think that's actually perfectly fair. I was thinking about that myself. Like if you swap out this role, and I'm just going to call the character Grace Kelly instead of Lisa because I don't think the name sure. Lisa fits Lisa's her Lisa is not the name Lisa for this character. Lisa is not the name for that person, no. like in the slightest. We do not want that name. I don't know what I would call her, Evelyn? I don't know, no, something better than that. <laughs> I love the name Evelyn. But no, Evelyn's she, a great name. In my head, I was like swapping her out. And, I and was, by the way, if your name Lisa out there, no offense. We no, were just saying that, that she's Grace Lisa. is a great name. Grace is a great name, honestly. Like Grace and Grace, it works. Exactly. Exactly. There are many Lisas in my life I have loved. It's just Grace Kelly only fits the name Grace. I don't know. But it really does. I was taking her and I was swapping her out with other actresses, right? In my head. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, whenever you swap Grace Kelly out for any other actress, you're suddenly like, maybe that girl's just not interesting enough for him, which is crazy and not totally fair. But Grace Kelly being this vision of perfection. Like Tippi Hedren could not do this part. No, I don't think so. Because I think any other girl you put in, you're like, maybe she's just annoying. But Grace Kelly is just effortless and charming and funny. And it makes you understand why in the films we've done after Rear Window, 
when we have, you know, Psycho and North by Northwest and we have um, Vertigo, you sense Hitchcock trying to get this relationship back that he had with Grace Kelly. Like he's trying to replace her with Eva Marie Saint and with, and with yes. Janet Lee, and he can't. He can't even replace her no, with Kim sh- Novak. And you see now what those roles could have been if they were also Grace Kelly, although maybe she would have been too perfect for Vertigo. No, I, I totally agree with you. And this is what I was kind of wrapping my head around because it it's such a dynamic performance. And she, like again, she smoked in this film and she refused to smoke in any other film, but Hitchcock got her to smoke. And I just, there is an, there's an, an element around her that she's not trying. Whereas the other actresses feel a little bit more like they are working it. And, and by the way, we're, t- we're talking about a very fine line because I love Eva Marie Saint in North by Northwest and I love Janet Lee. But there is there's an energy to her that's so relaxed that you don't really see in Hitchcock uh, female characters. I don't think that you see a relaxed woman for the most part. Oh, my gosh. That's so interesting. I mean, you're right. Like, I think there's a couple of things going on here. You know, one of them is just Grace Kelly herself. You know, she comes from this really wealthy Philadelphia family. Her dad made himself a multimillionaire just with, like, a tiny investment. He, like, force of will. He was also an Olympian. Her mom was a champion swimmer. Like, her mom was a model. Grace Kelly grew up in this family that was so successful and overachieving that she was always considered the loser of the family. Her dad was literally like, anything Grace could do, Peggy could do better, talking about her other sister. <laughs> like, ah, no, Peggy's really the star in the family, which is a, a bit he kept up sincerely, even when she won an Oscar. He was like, yeah, but Peggy, though. If it was Peggy out there, she'd be incredible. And yet, because even though she might have had this childhood that made her feel a little bit less than, when Grace Kelly shows up in Hollywood, she had a quality that very few aspiring actresses wanted, which was she's like, I could do this. I don't really care that much. You know, if you don't give me good roles, I'm out. Like, she wouldn't even buy a house in Hollywood. She rented an apartment because she was like, we'll see how this goes. And she basically shows up here in Hollywood, makes like, I think 11 films in four years, but really it's only like a handful of films in 18 months. She makes this little cluster of films 18 months later, and then she's like, I'm out. I'm a princess now. And so I think you can see in her this like devil may care attitude or kind of like, if you right. reject me, I'm fine. And I'm thinking, you know, that whole dynamic that you have in Vertigo, you know, with Carlotta wanting to live up to this vision. I wonder if that's how Hitchcock made all of his other actresses feel. Like they were all trying to live up to Grace Kelly and they couldn't do it. And that psychodrama that you even see Kim Novak going through is like all these actresses being like, how do I be as offhand as them as Grace is? And they couldn't be. And you hear that when Grace worked with Hitchcock, she was like the one actress he didn't really boss around because she was like, we're fine here. And he liked her. I, and then he bossed the rest ask, of them yeah. around. Like he, they couldn't ever have that same dynamic and they knew what they were missing. Yeah, I totally feel something different about her. When she's on screen, she is popping in a way. And, I, and, and, I, and that's really, I think, what I was getting at. Like, I couldn't put my finger on why. And I think it really is her energy, the way that Hitchcock let her be or directed her because I feel like at this point, you know, the film really feels like it's a play. Um, You're getting to watch these characters really be in a very small setting and the film never feels claustrophobic. And I don't know if that's because you do have the outside world a little bit, but, or is it just because these performers are so in the right gear? I mean, Jimmy Stewart, again, playing kind of an asshole, uh, but you feel so confident and secure. It's sort of like that idea of, 
you know, you can just sit back and relax. Like sometimes a good actor in a bad movie is like, I got this. Like, I know this is not good, but trust me, I'll guide you through it. And that's why I think a lot of times, you know, even, you know, Denzel Washington could be in whatever virtuosity, which I kind of like anyway, but you're like, eh, it's Denzel. It's fine. You know, there's that energy and aura around them uh, that just sort of like, no matter what, you're coming to see me and, and it's okay. And I feel like that's what he really captures here uh, from everybody. I mean, Thelma Ritter too. I mean, she's just great. Everyone just kind of perfectly cast. It's true. I mean, this was kind of this heavy hitter, magical dream team. I feel like when it came out, like you, we've seen Grace Kelly before, even on this list, like she was in High Noon mm-hmm. really briefly, right? She was that yes. wife. She was like, I'm here. Oh, don't die. And she was great in that, but it was very small and she wasn't right. this person. And this is only, what, three years later, two years later that she's become this Grace Kelly, right? I mean, when she's at yeah. High Noon, they offer her a studio contract. That was like really her first breakout role. And they're like, here, we'll give you 250 bucks a week. And she was like, no, I don't care. I don't need this. And so she just like said no to that, took a better handle on her career, did some auditions that didn't work out. But when Hitchcock and John Ford saw this screen test she did um, for a movie called Taxi, both of them were like, you rejected that woman? You're insane. And they hired her for Mongumbo, which was the John Ford movie. And then the film- Dial in for murder. Yeah, for Dial in for murder, which is so good. But yeah, even Thelma Ritter, like- she had just like popped up. She did Eve. And then I think she got four Oscar nominations in just a handful of years. So when you wow. pick her out, you're picking out, you know, who's the equivalent of that today? Like, oh, like when you pick out a Thelma Ritter here, it's like, I don't know, picking out Allison Janney or picking out maybe even somebody with more Oscar clout going into it. In a way, Stella, this nurse character that she's playing, isn't too different from Birdie and Eve. You know, the best friend, sort of housemaidy, questionable worker character who's just been there and feels like they can tell you anything and will tell you anything. Honestly, I don't know if I could, like, even tell the difference between Birdie and Stella, right? (laughs) Yeah, but you know what I think it is? Is it's a movie, and and I'm going back to this idea where the women are kind of in charge of the men and that seems, again, to be a rarity in Hitchcock films, showing these very strong women. And she literally is strong in the sense that she kind of muscles him around. She's massaging him. She's throwing him in a chair. She's kind of bossing him around. And, you know, everyone is giving him a dose of reality. Yeah. I mean, that has to really be what Hitchcock's getting out here, right? Like he's saying, yeah. I'm making a story about what it's like to be a man who is completely powerless and surrounded by powerful women who make him lash out, to be honest. I mean, really, I think that Rear Window is such a fascinating idea of looking at the male gaze in a way that is so much like Vertigo, except I think it's even kind of sharper and more crystalline and clear. Because what do we have? Like, he's... Jimmy Stewart is in there. He's not even buying dinner. Like, Hitchcock makes a point of watching Grace Kelly pay for dinner, pay the tip, you know, stuff that should make him feel unmanned, even though I know that's like a sexist way of saying it, but you see that it does have that effect on Jimmy Stewart because what does he do during dinner? He figures out ways to belittle Grace, make himself feel bigger again, you know, be like, you can't eat fish heads in the jungle. I'm much cooler than you. Because he's upset at the fact that he's prone, can't do anything, and this woman's bringing him lobster and paying for it. And I love that Hitchcock doesn't just let his misogyny, to be honest. Like, this is Jimmy Stewart being Mm -hmm. kind of a misogynist. He doesn't just let it go like, bada-bing, it's a zinger. He shows us Grace Kelly's face, register it, and feel hurt. 
you know? And so I feel like this is such a strong movie about how does a man react when he feels pitiful? You are so right on this because I'm thinking about that scene where they're kissing and, you know, she said that, you know, your head's not in it. And she's like, I'm used to having a man who is, you know, fully there. And she stops. Like, whereas I think a lot of other women of this time would just continue on. Like, she leaves. She has, like, a dignity to herself. Like, she's trying, and she goes. And yes, she comes back. But there is something about showing this idea, and I think this is the universal idea, of what else is out there, though? What else is out there for me? Because, you know, we have him say, you know, early on in the film, like, oh, you know, I'm I'm not going to get married to someone who thinks of life as just a new dress and a lobster dinner and the latest scandal. So he like he knows her so well, uh, you know, he's he's bored by her. And I think a lot of people we talk about this a lot, like this idea that, you know, these movies are kind of based in boredom. Sunrises, you know, oh, there's you know, I'm, I, I see what I have, but I don't that's not as good as like what's out there. And this movie continues to show that it's like what's outside the window is more interesting. And then. When you actually see somebody in distress later on in the movie, uh, when that one character is about to commit suicide, it's like, yeah, 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 but sure, sure, sure. But like, but what's this other thing that's kind of still like a fantasy to me? Like, you know, it's it's constantly finding the more exciting, titillating thing and not the thing that is actually important in your life, if that makes sense. Yeah. Although I might even say that it's not so much that Jimmy Stewart is bored by Grace Kelly it's that he doesn't even see her clearly. Like, he just has yes. this vision of what love is. Like, I mean, this is the way that he describes how marriage right. is on the phone to his boss when he's, like, whining that he has to be stuck in the house more. Now, wait a minute, Gunnison. Now, you, you've got to get me out of here. Six weeks sitting in a two-room apartment with nothing to do but look out the window at the neighbors. Bye, Jeff. Now, Gunnison, if you don't pull me out of this swamp of boredom, I'm going to do something drastic. Like what? Like what? I'm going to get married, and then I'll never be able to go anywhere. It's about time you got married, before you turn into a lonesome and bitter old man. Yeah, can't you just see me? Rushing home to a hot apartment to listen to the automatic laundry and the electric dishwasher and the garbage disposal the nagging wife. Jeff, wives don't nag anymore. They discuss. That's so. That's so. Well, maybe in the high rent district they discuss. In my neighborhood, they still nag. I mean, that's Jimmy Stewart's view of marriage just as a blanket statement. He thinks no matter what, Grace Kelly's going to nag him, that this woman's going to become a nag. I mean, he's putting all these things on her. He's like, you couldn't do this, and you couldn't do that, and you're not willing to do this. And she never says any of that. She, she's never like, I would never go to the jungle right. with you. She's like, fun. Yeah, and and she does go along with him on this mystery. She's not a person that's dousing the fire like his friend who the police officer is. Like in a a different world, you would see the police officer friend and him kind of co-conspirating about, oh, yeah, that's what's going on. But here she is not only, uh, you know, helping fuel this idea, but pitching in with better ideas and then putting, she puts her literal life on the line and puts her body on the line to be his, his legs to actually get in the mix. Twice. Yeah. Twice. Twice. Um, I mean, I would say, you know, if this is a movie about a man who only takes seriously what he sees out of his window, he doesn't take her seriously until he sees her through his window. 
doing these things that she's probably always been capable of doing, seeing who she really right. is that he just couldn't see clearly until it was through the thing that he's obsessed with, through this little frame. Well, yes. Right. Once she becomes that thing and, and he the look on his face when he sees her is so in love. And I guess what I'm saying is not that he's bored by her, not that she's boring, but this idea that there's always a bigger, better thing. I mean, we talk about the BDE of Jimmy Stewart. Let's talk about the uh, BBD, the bigger, better deal uh, of <laughs> to say, you know, that I think everyone gets obsessed with. The grass is always greener. Like no matter what, the grass is always greener. I'm going to get out and I'm going to do this. Like I am now a man who has watched a lot of his friends either uh, get divorced or do something like, and then you like see like these people change, like, oh, I'm going to get out there and do all this stuff. And it's not, it's not, ex- it, it seems terrible. It seems like an awful existence. But the idea of like, it's so exciting when it's safe to do it. And I feel like that's what he, he kind of has this girl at him. And at this, and then once she puts her neck on the line and he can't get to her and she can't help, like that's when he, he clicks on, like when he's about to lose it, which I think a lot of people can relate to. I think that that's a relatable idea that you don't miss it until it's gone. I'm You're sure right. there's at least one song written about that. <laughs> and I think, yeah, it's definitely voice to men. Hey, baby. Sorry, I got cheated <laughs> on you. But no, like, I think as as much as Grace is like this perfection on this crazy end of the scale, you know, casting Jimmy Stewart, I think, is getting to exactly what you're saying. Because Jimmy Stewart, when he makes this movie, he's 46. You know, the idea that he's like, I'm still a young boy and I don't want to grow up is getting sillier when you see it on his face. I mean, imagine if instead of being Jimmy Stewart at 46, a person that everybody had seen grow up, seen get married in films that took place 20 years before, it was, you know, I don't know, somebody else young and hot from that period. If it was Elvis, if it was if it was, right. if it was James Dean, you know, then you'd be like... Alfred Hitchcock presents Elvis Presley in well, Rear right. Window. But you know, if it's somebody <laughs> younger than Jimmy Stewart... Then you're like, well, he's got a point. But I think in casting somebody the age of Jimmy Stewart, it's again Hitchcock being like, this is his problem. This is his problem. Yes. Yeah. But also, I think when we see in Vertigo, it's sort of like, this is who he feels the most confident in to deliver these things. Uh, but yes, I mean, they, I think they gray up his hair in this movie a little bit, too, to make him look a little bit older. He is 46. But Grace Kelly did say she told Gossam columnists at the time that she found James Stewart to be one of the most masculine, attractive men that she's ever met. Oh, um, well, obviously. Yeah. Um, I mean, she's you know, around him in his pajamas all the time. They definitely try to make him look a little bit older. I don't know if it was hair dye or his hair was actually that gray at the time, but I like that idea of Jimmy Stewart being a bachelor who didn't settle down. I love that version. I think we talk a lot about like these Judd Apatow movies, and he's not the only one, obviously, but this idea of like this arrested man child, but we very rarely see it. As someone that's approaching 50, you know, we see it as somebody like who's like 32, you know, but uh, approaching 50 is kind of a fun, you know, it, it it shows that these are the choices that he's made his entire life. And, and the idea of like watching the world outside or watching through a lens that he's failing to interact with life. And I, I, I like the idea that he is um, that old. It's kind of fun to, to see that. We don't see that age kind of be affected, I guess, in, besides like sideways or something. Yeah, I know. I mean, like Hitchcock did make Raymond Bird dye his hair gray and wear glasses. So it would not surprise me if he was frosting up Jimmy Stewart a little bit. By the way, Raymond Burr, unrecognizable in this movie. I forgot that it was Raymond Burr. I'm like, who is this like German actor? He's got such a great face. And then it's like, oh, it's Raymond Burr. I mean, he really is an intimidating, unrecognizable guy for someone who is such uh, a staple of 
you know, our our TV and film life. I, I just couldn't. He really is shockingly different. No, and if you're hugging a dog who is a Portuguese water poodle this this whole period, you should know that Raymond Burt was one of the people who helped bring over and breed the Portuguese waterhound. So thank you. Really? Yes, thank you, Raymond Burr. If you love, say, what was Obama's dog again? It was so cute. What Bo. was it? Bo, wasn't it? Bo, Bo, Bo. Bo. Thank you, Josh. Producer Josh jumping in with the name of the dog. Thank, I was thinking Socks, which is Clinton's cat. That's where my brain is. <laughs> but yeah, Bo can probably thank Raymond Burr for being alive. So thank you, Raymond Burr. You know, I want to just say one more thing about Raymond Burr's look as well. Um, He was made up to look like Hitchcock's old producer, David O. Selznick. Oh, wow. Um, Our buddy David O. Selznick, father of Byron Selznick, the Selznick connection that we've been talking about forever. I know. And because, and I love this idea that Hitchcock was like, oh, Selznick was a person who interfered too much. So he wanted to kind of stick it to Selznick by making him look like Selznick. And if you look at Selznick, uh, he looks... He looks like him. I, I love that like little dig at him just to be like, yep, take it. Take it. You're a murderer. <laughs> I mean, but I also like that this killer, that Thorwald, you would say that he, quote unquote, doesn't look like a killer kind of right. You know, he's just right an average guy. You wouldn't look at him twice average. on the street. He's in that, almost in that serial killer thing of like, oh, we just seem like such a sweetheart. But he really doesn't look like a movie murderer. You know, the way no, that we cast I mean, murderers. Yes, he's a little bit overweight. He uh, doesn't really look ominous. He lives in a very simple house. And I love this idea, that monologue that we played at the top of the show about how you know everyone looks guilty or suspect when they're alone uh, is an interesting idea. Like, you know, everyone can be a murderer or everyone can be innocent. And I think that Hitchcock does such a great uh, thing at the end of the film with the coda where you actually see who these people are. Like when you see that the dancer isn't just looking for a really hot guy, but she is waiting for her love to come back from the army. Or, you know, that woman who goes out to the bar and has that kind of failed moment. Like, you get to see who these people really are, but your your impressions are changing with, uh, with the lead character, which is something that's so rarely done. Right? Exactly. I mean, because this is, I feel like, about Jimmy Stewart learning to see everybody, but really especially women. Because when Jimmy mm. Stewart is in his apartment looking across at all of these people, he's given them nicknames, right? Like he calls yeah. the beautiful blonde dancer Miss Torso, which when you think mm-hmm. about it is kind of a morbid fucked up name for a movie that's about a dude who also cuts his wife into pieces. This is Ooh. Jimmy Stewart being like, yeah, Miss Torso. I th- I honestly feel like that's a bit of a deliberate dig to say, is Jimmy Stewart that much better of a guy? Does Jimmy Stewart see women that much more holistically? I mean, no, I mean, seeing a person to a body part. I mean, they literally use her multiple times in the film uh, to basically, that's the male gaze. Like, that's the worst part of the male gaze, right? I mean, the whole movie is through literally the male gaze. But, like, that idea of just, like, everyone who comes in is kind of, like, ogling this woman. Who, by the way, uh, Georgine Darcy, that's who played Miss Torso, uh, she uh, relaxed and lived in her apartment set on takes, like, as she was actually living there because all these sets that were here were functioning apartments. They had running water. They had a full, it was a full like apartment. So she, uh, she really got comfortable there. 
Um, That's so wild. Although I heard that Hitchcock kind of tortured her a little bit because she didn't know who he was. She was a dancer and yeah. she gets hired. She's 17 years old and she goes on a date the day that she gets hired. And she's like, I don't know. I got hired by this guy. He's a short little man. He's bald. He's got a Cockney accent. And her date was like, that's Hitchcock, you ninny, essentially. Like, how do you not know who this man is? But so when she was on set, Hitchcock, you know, there's that scene where she eats a pie from the fridge. She's like, what kind yeah. of pie do you like? And she says, I love every pie but pumpkin. He gets her a ton of pumpkin pie and forces oh, her to man. eat pumpkin pie over and over Just like and Ghost over Story. <laughs> we could have had a little, a little prequel to that. By the way, um, just you said that she was a dancer, but I heard that she wasn't a, a dancer because he let her choreograph her moves and he permitted her to dance freely, but his only restriction was never take a dance lesson because I want you to be and remain an amateur. Well, like I, he wanted, yeah. She says she was a he ballerina to, who had been dancing in Vegas, so I don't know. Oh, interesting. All right, so who knows? Maybe that was a dig on her. <laughs> Maybe he felt like, I mean, because she did seem like she had some sort of competency there. Yeah, um, absolutely. But I think, to me, what I love even more about her character is how much mm-hmm. Jimmy Stewart feels like he knows her and predicts her and psychoanalyzes her and how much But don't just, we all do that? Well, yes, but the movie is about how much he's consistently wrong. And that's why I love having yes. Grace Kelly there from the beginning. Like, Grace always knows he's wrong. I mean, listen to this conversation they yeah. have when he's watching Miss Torso have three gentlemen over to her house. Miss Lonely Heart. Well, at least that's something you'll never have to worry about. Oh, you can see my apartment from here all the way up on 63rd Street? No, not exactly, but we have a little apartment here that's probably about as popular as yours. You remember, of course, Miss Torso, the ballet dancer? She's like a queen bee with her pick of the drones. I'd say she's doing a woman's hardest job, juggling wolves. I mean, even in that, you get how much he just assumes that Grace Kelly's life is exactly like this other life that he's already misinterpreting. You know that Grace probably just has her pick of drones, which is how he thinks of men, the other men who are like circling around a woman, and that she's this kind of almost aggressive, violent figure to be the queen bee. You know, like it, his his language is so coded, and to have Grace there being like, "Here is where you're wrong. You're wrong about her. You're wrong about her. You're wrong about me. You don't. You're not seeing women clearly at all." No, I. But I don't. You think our culture has become so much more of this? And I, I go to social media and, and specifically Instagram because we are looking at pictures of people and we start to determine, you know, what life they live, who they're with. We feel bad that we're not out living with it. Like we've replaced our windows with a black screen and we are looking at all those people and we are making these assumptions and they make us feel good about ourselves and make us feel bad about ourselves. And, you know, there is a version of this movie, if you want to remake it, Jesse Eisenberg and uh, Brie Larson, that's my pitch, um, uh, just being obsessed about who they see on Instagram and, and, and creating a story for these people. And then you understand, like, a lot of the times with people on Instagram, like, no, that's not what I was actually going through at that time. That was not, this is like a public persona. And I think we've kind of gone so much into this direction. And we're like, as a culture right now, this movie seems even more relevant because it's never right. We are just, we're not right. We're just not right. We're, we're creating a narrative that we want to kind of titillate ourselves to a certain degree or make us feel good or bad. You're right. I'm, although I'm going to have to replace Brie Larson with either Emma Stone or Margot Robbie, if you do not mind. I, oh, I think, that's interesting. I think they're like I only saw Brie Larson parallels. because they looked so 
alike. I'm not talking about acting style as much as I was like, I looked at her at one point. I was like, oh, she really reminds me of like Grace Kelly, like reminds me of Brie Larson. They do um, have that same sense of serene, I guess. But yeah, I have the charm that comes off of Emma Stone, I think is just un- unparalleled by anybody. By the way. I would also say that after seeing Margot Robbie and Harley Quinn, which is a great movie, go see it. Hopefully it will be released now because it seems like studios are really moving up every uh, new release. Uh, It's so good. She's so good. And she would be amazing. Um, Can we back this movie out to the beginning? Because we're talking about this voyeuristic idea. And the, the film opens with this shot that is unbelievable. It's not even a POV shot. It's it is just you the audience's pov we're getting to meet all these characters and i think we're the first people making these assumptions we're seeing miss torso get out of the bed without a bra and feeling titillated by that or or not i mean what i mean but that idea like oh what are we seeing here we're seeing we're meeting the dog we're meeting the people we're meeting every uh character and i think that we're the first people to make these snap judgments i i that's how at least I feel like Hitchcock directed it because it's not Jimmy Stewart looking at them. It's us looking at them. I mean, I do appreciate that the first people we see, the first thing we see is a cat. Thank you, cat, for welcoming us into this universe. <laughs> no, that's true because I feel like Hitchcock, Hitchcock's films about voyeurism are always staring back at us, right? The way that the film mm-hmm. about faces when you realize that people can look at Jimmy Stewart, that's how Hitchcock sees us. You know, you're here staring yeah, I mean, there's no wonder that Rear Window was this touchstone film in that groundbreaking film essay that you've at least heard one of the terms that came up in here popularized, if not the actual name or the writer. Her name is Laura Mulvey. The essay was called Visual Pleasure in Narrative Cinema. And the term she comes up with in here really popularizes is male gaze. And she uses mm. Rear Window as one of her major touchstones because that it's exactly us. I mean, the number of shots we get of Miss Torso bending at the fridge, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Like, I felt like, I felt guilty. I felt so guilty. Like, oh my gosh, this actress, is it okay that I'm staring at her? I'm really staring at her. And I think Hitchcock really wants you to feel this way. Like he wants you to feel a party to this. You know, you can't look at anyone with guilty eyes because you have these guilty eyes. And I think one of the ways he does it, and it's so slight, is making all the music in the film diegetic, which means it's only coming from, you know, the surrounding area. It's only in the top of the opening credits and the end are we hearing actual music. But throughout the whole film, it's just noise of the streets. It's light voices speaking. It's, uh, it's again, hearing the piano play. I love that idea. It just, it takes away all the things that create a movie and really put you in the position because you don't know what's right or what's wrong. You're debating it with the characters and you're siding with some and with the way Hitchcock has a reputation for, this movie could go in many different directions and I love that about the movie. You really are, you know, a part of it. Like when Jimmy Stewart falls asleep, you're not getting any extra information. You are with him. Uh, I, I, And, you know, even when he sees the difference in the flower bed, like he doesn't let you into it just right away. He lets you kind of if you notice it, that's great. He's really putting the power in the audience's hands or making you feel like you're in that room. Well, yeah. I mean, I like talking about the ethics of is he a good person? What is he, what is he doing? And I like it when even he brings it up in the movie right here. You know, much as I hate to give Thomas J. Doyle too much credit, he might have gotten a hold of something when he said that was pretty private stuff going on out there. I wonder if it's ethical to watch a man with binoculars and a long focus lens. Do you, 
Do you suppose it's ethical even if you prove that he didn't commit a crime? I'm not much on rear window ethics. Of course, they can do the same thing to me, watch me like a bug under a glass if they want to. Jeff, you know, if someone came in here, they wouldn't believe with it, see? What? You and me with long faces plunged into despair because we find out a man didn't kill his wife. We're two of the most frightening ghouls I've ever known. You'd think we could be a little bit happy that the poor woman is alive and well. You know, I, I love that conversation because they are seeing themselves and their behavior and calling it unclearly. But really, when you yeah. think about it, this murder that he's committed, I think there's a reason why in this moment when they're doubting that it's even true, he would have jumped to this conclusion in the first place. Here's a man who says that his greatest fear in life is being nagged by a wife, getting married, being yes. nagged. He sees this woman doing what he thinks is nagging, and then he immediately is like, she's gone, I bet he killed her. And isn't that just his id, being like, I'd probably yes. do that. I'd probably kill that woman if she was Absolutely. nagging me. I can't let a woman nag at me. And so it's almost... You, you know the way they, like, say our president can't, like, stop accusing other people of doing what you know he's doing? I mean, that's basically what right. Jimmy Stewart is here, right? He's looking at the yeah. deepest part of himself, but projecting it on somebody else. He just happens to be right. And then how interesting is it, you know, that he's got this blonde girlfriend. When you look into all the windows, it's all of these other blonde women at different stages of what their lives could be, besides Miss Lonely Hearts, who's clearly dyed her hair. You know, it may be in some yes. sort of desperate attempt. But it's, you know— the older blonde woman who never marries and is just dedicated to her art in the lower corner who gets yelled at all the time. You have yes. the blonde newlywed. You have the blonde single girl dancer with all the men that he thinks she is. You have, you know, just this kind of like network of different women, you know, the blonde wife that he thinks will become a nag. He sees all of these options of how he thinks his relationship with her could go. And none of them are really who she is. I think that that's what makes this movie timeless is this idea that we're obsessed with you know, what's going on behind the scenes. And this is so voyeuristic even because we very rarely get to see people um, without the airs they're putting on. And, you know, we see the way that people put on their airs. But I, I just think that this movie is kind of, will never go away because we're always fascinated by not only is the grass greener on the other side of the fence, but what's going on inside that house that is on that grass as well. What's right? really going on? I, yeah. think, I think we should all just get a bunch of white bread and brandy and have sandwiches. I love it. <laughs> By the way, can I just say one thing? Uh, you know, I would love to get together with everybody and just <laughs> with that brandy. By the way, they have brandy, then they get more drinks, which I love. It's like, oh, the brandy's not a drink. He's like, get me a drink. And then he goes, gets another drink. Um, but uh, I wanted to say that Thorwald confesses in record time, almost as quick as Thelma Ritter gives Jimmy Stewart a massage. Uh, like he tells everything. <laughs> like when that cop, when they, when the partner peeks up his head, he's like, he told us he killed the dog and he told us where the wife is. Like, wow, what did they do? What kind of interrogation technique was that? That was <laughs> immediate. Well, I think that almost speaks to the fact that Thorwald isn't really a, murderer the way that we see them yeah. in films, right? Usually. Like right. he's not yeah. a schemer or planner. He doesn't seem Oh, no. Any guy who kills his wife is a bad person. But Thorwald is not like a stone cold evil killer, right? Uh, no, I'm I'm saying this wrong, but he's not No, he's I know not what you're hardened. saying. Like, like he's gonna be like, oh God, I really did fuck up on this. There's like, a oh, what have there's I done? a difference look, I'm not saying that it's better. Yeah. But there's a difference to someone who murders once and out of passion and and how ill-advised it is. And I think we get to see that in Sunrise, too. I'm not I'm not advocating murder in any way, but I think that there is something about he's not like a master planner. He 
he's just a one-timer, you know, and I think that there is something simple about it. He's not a, cri- I guess he is a, cr- he is technically a criminal, but he's not like a, it's hard. It's all, we're, yeah. we're in a loophole, but he's you know, no what, you know, I mean, he's scariest exactly. when you don't see his face. He's scariest when you just see his cigar, right? In the dark. I agree. I agree. I mean, well, look, I love that final scene where he's, he's charging towards him very slowly. And, and Jimmy Stewart's like loading in flash bulbs, like they were bullets. And, you know, it's, it's stump, you know, he's taking off his glasses to be like, Oh my eyes. <laughs> It's such a a wimpy scene, but kind of wonderful. So here's a man who is, you know, uh, with a broken leg, can't move, tackling this other man who probably doesn't even know why he's there. Like, he probably is like, I'm going to kill this guy. He doesn't even know, you know. It's like, but I love that, like, the simplicity of taking off his glasses. It's kind of like my favorite scene in Bad Boys, Bad Boys for Life, when uh, Martin Lawrence (laughs) has to put on his glasses to uh, fight the big bad guy at the end. Love that movie. Hopefully that will come out uh, also uh, very quickly on VOD. I mean, the only thing I wish... Is that I could undo what I know about Rear Window and watch it not knowing that the murder at the center of this happened, right? Right. I mean, I hope that's not a spoiler yeah. for anybody listening to this. Like, is that a spoiler? Can we talk about that? It's not a spoiler. I mean, we. I mean, look, if you're listening to this and you're this far into it, like, why? Why? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, no, I wish uh, I could watch this and have that sense of doubt. You know, that mm. like an audience must have felt when they sat down in 1954, because the audience does get one piece of information that Jimmy doesn't have while he's asleep, which is only the audience gets to see that Thorwald leaves the house with a woman. We get to see right. that woman walk down the hall, which Jimmy always misses. And I feel like there's a very world where, double indemnity, by the way. Exactly. And uh, I feel like there's yeah. a world where if I was sitting down in the theater in 1954 and didn't know what was going to happen, I'd be like, he just doesn't know. He didn't see that thing. This guy's going to get himself into a lot of trouble for something that I right. know is wrong. And I, I want that yeah. feeling back. I'm jealous of it. You know, but there's so many interesting twists and turns in a Hitchcock film that I think even knowing that a murder took place, there is an just this amazing air of rewatchability. And I actually pulled a clip of um, Scorsese, uh, another AFI director, uh, talking about why this movie is so rewatchable. There's no doubt. Rear Window is a film you can watch again and again also. Again, the story doesn't matter. You know all the facts. You know what's going to happen. You know the plot. But it's the way, I think, um, two things. Again, the way Hitchcock shows it, which means where he aims the camera, what he puts in the frame, how he moves it, how he doesn't move it, the use of color, and Jimmy Stewart's character, who um, morally is on the edge, you see. Should he be doing what he's doing? It's none of his business, you know? It really is none of his business. What kind of a guy is this? And he's our hero. You know, we have to go through with him. And I think that's something, uh, again, that um, only Stewart could have pulled off. Uh, you like him because he's a very genial guy in the beginning of the picture, you know. But he goes off on some perverse trip, you know. It's very odd. And, you know, hearing him say that, I was like, oh, why? Jimmy Stewart's like a weird, I mean, we like you like him so much, but you forget like, oh, this is bad. Like, I, I don't think of the movie like that. And I think maybe on rewatching it, you start to take away the lead character, the hero-ness of that character. And you can kind of see him for who he is. And we definitely talked about him being a guy who like wants more from life, but he's really getting involved in people's business. And you don't really, I think it's hard to, to make him look bad or make you yourself feel bad about him because we all do it. Uh, so you kind of write it off, but it is, a, he's a, he's a creepy character. Well, yeah. And what I think is so interesting is there's this analogy that, that is getting built up in here, right? In a way, right. 
I mean, what Jimmy Stewart is doing is not that different than what you've done as a screenwriter or what people who, what Hitchcock himself has done. You know, you look at the world, you give people characters, you come up with their motivations, and you watch them, and you have this whole story that you tell yourself about them. In a way, I mean, reality TV wasn't a thing so much in 1954, but it's hard to see the difference between, like, Rear Window and then me getting obsessed with Love is Blind on Netflix during this quarantine and being like, I need to look at all their Instagrams. I need to see everybody, like, what's happening with them now. Like, I mean, it's that same itch. It, it, and I love that it also, like, the apartment windows and movies and even my cell phone Instagram window, they're all these boxes, right? It's just worlds of peering yeah. into boxes. That's exactly right. You know, I love this. And, and, you know, I think the movie really distills it all right at the end where, you know, this great confrontation scene when uh, Thorwald comes in to confront Jimmy Stewart's character and he he says to me he's like you know what do you what do you want why are you doing this and Jimmy Stewart remains silent you know it's like he's kind of a dick he's got you know it's like it's you know it's like he wants to do it because he just wants to be right or he's like you know it's I don't feel like he is helping this woman, as much as he's kind of playing a game of he's right. Yeah, I mean, he does not care about Mrs. Thorwald, really. No, and honestly, not really. neither just, does yeah. the movie. The movie is not like, here's what she's like as a person. <laughs> yeah, we get this glimpse of her like making fun of a flower that he puts on her tray table. Yeah. Yeah, the movie's like, we don't know that much about it. I mean, in a way, the movie reminded me a bit in their scenes of a silent movie. You know, almost like watching Sunrise again. You know, she's in bed. We see him get a phone call. We see her yell. And we're kind of piecing together without the inner titles. You know, like, was it his mistress on the phone? Who's calling? Why is she mad? What's starting the fight? But it is like watching Right, we don't know. Is he talking to a jeweler or not? Like, yeah, we're watching a silent film without cards. Exactly. Exactly. But, I mean, Hitchcock doesn't ever give us a close-up of her face we get one close-up later of you know right Ms. well Corso, that's before he put the Ms. big Lillian, lens on it but we never that's see before he got her. the 400 millimeter <laughs> exactly but Hitchcock yeah. never lets us care about Miss Thorold he's never like here she is she even looks kind of healthy in that bed so the idea that she's an invalid is a little bit like what that is a little bizarre but um I was kind of interested in the idea too like when that police officer, who I think is a great actor and another just key component of this film, when he comes in and basically just shoots down every single thing that Jimmy Stewart believes with logic and reason as an audience, you're like, yeah, but he's wrong. And again, that's another thing that I think we could kind of gravitate to, to in our culture right now. Like, like Experts, don't pay attention to that. Experts yeah, don't like, know anything. I know. I alone know. I, it's such a funny idea. Um, by the way, do you know that this is actually based on um, a case from 1910? This this whole murder I case? I have heard. I've heard it's based on two murder cases. Yeah. The one that I knew about was from uh, Dr. Holly Harvey Crippen, who poisoned and cut up his wife's body. He claimed that she moved to Los Angeles. But when his mistress was spotted wearing uh, his wife's jewelry, it all went downhill. Um and it also, to your point, it was also uh, inspired by the real-life murder case of uh, Patrick um, Mahan in 1924 when he murdered his pregnant mistress and dismembered her body. And uh, guys, if you watch MSNBC on any given night, you will see that we keep on doing it. We yeah. get Guys will always be trying to dispose of their wives' bodies in a, in a forest, off a boat. We are, we are, uh, one thing that we have in in spades here in America is guys getting ready to leave their mistress. 
Yeah, you know, I... And by the way, sunrise is the same thing. Yeah, ex- oh my God, you're right. Oh God. Every, I mean, I did look up, I didn't know this, but there is a specific word for the killing of your wife, and that's uh-huh. uxoricide. I hope I'm saying that right. It's U-X-O-R-I-C-I-D. If you don't, you're going to have the wrong people mad at you. Well, the, yeah, I'm not married to any of them, so I'll stay alive, and you have to find me first. <laughs> uh, killing your husband is morbidicide, by the way. Oh, and okay. I wanted to look this up. I was like, are there any other more specific words? And if you are curious, maybe these are bad words to be telling people if you're trapped at home with your family. But Yeah, maybe. Avunculicide is the killing of one's okay. uncle. Uh, nepoticide <laughs> is the killing of your nephew. And sororicide oh. is the killing of your sister, which I think is a great movie title. Uh, by the way, sorority is great. I mean, because it's like it has that sorority tie-in. It's a great college <laughs> movie. I'm very excited. Um, um, I did look up one fun fact though about the murder of Emily K. Really fast, which yeah. is you know she was pregnant. She was dating a married man who had already done time for attempted murder. Um, okay, cool. And so he tells her he's leaving his wife. He brings her a ring. They meet in this bungalow, and he packs along a chef's knife and a saw, and he cuts her up. He puts her um, head in a hat box. He puts her body in a trunk. Um, his wife finds the left leg, the left leg, luggage tag, which is how she finds oh. the suitcase himself. And when the cops question him, he says, I'm just fond of dogs. I suppose I carried home meat for dogs. And the, the cop said, you don't carry dogs meat in silk. Hey, so, yeah. Yeah. Oh. yeah they're By the way, and, and we're also, we're saying that this is based on real life events. That really is disturbing. I was going to talk about another disturbing murder, but then I'm realizing I'm laughing at a real person being murdered. It was just like a crazy story I saw on MSNBC. Um, but has uh, more weight in 2020, huh? Oh, gosh, it's so crazy. But it, even though it was based on uh, a true story or inspired by a true story, it, the film is based on a short story by Cornell Woolrich, who I guess was inspired by those events, wrote a book. And I thought it was really interesting. In the book, you only find out that the hero has a broken leg in the last line of the novel, which I kind of love and i think it's an idea that hitchcock plays with too this idea of like um you're not even questioning like why he's trapped there and i love that idea that that's like the final twist is oh he couldn't leave the house like uh you know but you're probably not even questioning it when you're reading it because you're just kind of engaged by it but there is also another big switch that happens from this original story to the film to what hitchcock wanted to do with it which i think helps us be sure that we know exactly that he knew what he was talking about in in rear window you know, in the original in the original story there's no girlfriend you know there's no miss torso there's no miss lonely hearts there's no there's none of these women um that hitchcock populates the film with instead the only person who's in the room with him is a black man that he has hired as his housekeeper and so hitchcock oh, gets rid of any racial tension he thought the racial tension was actually really clumsily handled in the short story right. and he populates it with women to make this a story about a man and the women in his life which i th- i think is such a really pointed change and actually, Colonel Woolrich, who wrote the film, too, one other thing about him is this was a little bit based on his own real-life experience. Just a touch. Just a touch. Because in the 20s, when he was in Columbia University, he got sick, and he had to be stuck in his own house for weeks. And that's when he took up writing. That's when he became a writer himself and started to write a bunch of short stories. He's a person who was maybe just one tier below Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler. Like People love to read his stories in all those pulpy murder magazines. And a lot of his stuff did get optioned and became movies and blah, 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 blah. And then after Rear Window becomes a movie, he really honestly winds up becoming a real-life New York City recluse, which it's almost this kind of creepy way of fiction becoming film becoming life. Like, 
he becomes such a recluse in New York that his foot becomes gangrenous. And he has to have it oh. amputated in the 60s. And so he becomes a one-legged man stuck in his apartment. Just talking about the writing in this, and I was thinking about this as I was watching. You know, we are talking a lot on this podcast about writer-directors. It's like one pure vision uh, a lot of the times. And it occurred to me that Hitchcock really never wrote a screenplay. He collaborated a lot. And I think, you know, he probably had a lot more to do with screenplays than we know. But I think it was really interesting that, you know, he wrote uh, this movie, Rear Window, with um, a writer named John Michael Hayes, who he also wrote um, To Catch a Thief With, The Trouble with Harry, and The Man Who Knew Too Much. Um, But it's interesting to have somebody so known for creating tension and drama and, and... Everything is so beautifully orchestrated, and he's not writing it. Like, physically, his name isn't on the scripts like uh, other writer-directors at the time. I I don't know why that is, that he didn't want to take that full credit, because it seems to me that he is so obsessive about every single detail. And it seems to me that his hands and fingerprints are over – everywhere on these things. But it's – I just found it interesting that he never really took screenplay credit. Yeah, I mean, I wonder if he – Felt like he needed it. Maybe he was like, might have so many fingerprints on this. Everybody knows it's a Hitchcock picture, anyways. I mean, because he does seem like a person who had a real ego and a sense of self, and he actually wasn't even financially that comfortable until after Rear Window. And this movie becomes like the biggest hit of 1954. You know, when it's released, it's it's giant for him. Yeah, so you always um, wonder. He mean he doesn't seem like a guy who would leave money on the table if he was doing work. Um, but I think he's a a. a someone who used the script as a guideline, you know, like the actors and everything like that. It's like, okay, now this is mine and I will make this my own. I just thought it was really interesting. We associate so much, oh, it's a Hitchcock film, it's a Hitchcock film, it's a Hitchcock film. And that really is about the way it was directed, but it's also about the tone of the scripts. I think the scripts are so heavily influenced by his personality. What we knew about him, we've talked about him now a handful of times. I think that his stamp is is uniquely on this film and, and all of his films. But not to have that writing credit is is really interesting to me. Yeah, I mean, it makes me wonder if... I think there is this pressure right now if you're a person who wants to be in a film that only writer-directors, you know, only the kind of... Yes. Yeah, you have to do everything yourself. And the truth is, I think a lot of really good directors are not strong writers and would probably make stronger films if they were able to partner with people yeah. that they thought were better writers who also who don't want to direct. It's like, I think that like sometimes when you bring in someone who's very strong at something and you can collaborate in a really interesting way, you get a better product. I mean, that's, that's my bread and butter. I love working with really smart and talented people because I think the more that you get input on something, the better it, the end product will be because you're not just, you, you have people to challenge you and question you, uh, very much like Jimmy Stewart had people to challenge him and question him about his, uh, his thoughts of a murderer across the way. Um, by the way, I talked to, earlier about uh, the Vertigo comparisons. There's one giant one that I left out. Do you What's know that? which one I left out? Uh-oh, what the is it? fall. Oh yeah, that effect. Like I mean, he Jimmy Stewart does fall from his window uh, from a set, which we haven't even talked about. The set. This set is unreal. I mean, it's just absolutely beautiful. Now, can you tell me a little bit about the set? Like I, from what I understood. Were there miniatures involved as well as just this giant ass set like this, you know, or is it, was it all just a giant ass set? Because 
there is so much little details going on in the background. Like there's a little alleyway and no matter what's going on in the foreground, you're always seeing action in the alleyway, whether people are getting in cabs or kids are playing a game, cars driving by. I mean, this is a, I know it was a, uh, you know, a set that took six weeks to construct um, and had it been a drainage system in it because it had rain in the film um, and they could create morning, noon and night. I just was a kind of blown away by how, how giant it was. And at points I was like, did they ever go to a miniature or is it always just this giant ass set? I mean, I haven't heard of miniatures. Like what it sounds okay. like to me is that Jimmy Stewart's apartment was the base level of kind of the mm-hmm. indoor building where they shot it at. And then they dug a big hole for the courtyard. So it went down, uh-huh. I think, 20 stories or 20 feet, 30 feet. So you'd have this courtyard beneath the stage level door. And then they made it, I think, a total of kind of five, six stories high from there. You know, if you were so. counting up. And they, from what I've understood... You know, they give a casual address in the film, and it basically is the address that is right there in New York. Like, if you went to around that section in New York, I don't know Greenwich Village that much, so I was going to ask you as a New Yorker if it looked really New York. Because I've I've been there, but I can't tell apart from anything else. It definitely feels New York because I think you're staring at a building, which I've had many apartments in New York where you're staring at a building. Uh, The courtyard is a little bit different because it seemed more communal. Uh, but yes, I mean, there are elements that didn't, it doesn't feel fakey to me. I mean, it feels very alive. I mean, and I'm doing a little bit of research here as I'm talking to you. Uh, the apartment had 31 units, eight, which were completely furnished. They had electricity and plumbing that could be fully lived in, which we talked about for Miss Torso. He basically built real estate. He built, you know, he built a very nice apartment building here. Yeah. Um, and the way that he coordinated everything I heard is that all of the actors had these hidden microphones, right? Yes. So he mm-hmm. was able to say like, do this right now, get up and go to the window make yourself this romantic dinner alone. Oh, how sad is it that you see what Miss Lonely Hearts is dreaming of is a man who will kiss oh. her on the cheek and what she gets is a man who throws her on the couch. Oh, it kills me. I know. But then and, Oh, by the way, yeah. That one of that famous oh, sorry, I was going to say one of the famous scenes where he was playing with two actors with, with a headset was uh the couple that sleeps on the mattress outdoors. He was telling her to pull the sheets over and he was telling him to pull the sheets on his end. So you see them tussling for sheets. But he didn't let them know that. So you actually feel this real uh, this real kind of tussle. I love that. That's so evil. That's so brilliant. But, it, I mean, it works. It works. I mean, this is just so perfectly stage managed. Even to the point that you were talking about the fallout of the window. I mean, my God, the heavy symbolism of the fact that Jimmy Stewart isn't going to leave his bachelor apartment and his bachelor life until he is physically pushed out the window. And it's like, I know. get out of your bachelor headspace, man. Marry this girl. Oh, I love that. I didn't see the symbolism in that until now. I mean, because, you know, it's interesting that by not making him a shut-in, but he is a person who looks through a lens, right? That's what we know. The movie, again, there's so many beautiful shots. I was like, this movie sets up this character so wonderfully, so quickly. You get to see the pictures he's took. You saw the broken camera. You see the the you know you see uh, Grace Kelly on the cover of the bag. It's like everything, even the way that he positions her image there. You know, kind of in this um, you know not sepia, but like this X-ray version when you used to do you know big giant negatives. I just love the way they introduce everything you need to know. Just with the camera, no, uh, you know, doesn't it treats the audience smartly? And I think Hitchcock does a great job of again. You start to make assumptions about him based on all this sort of stuff, and you may think that he's a rogue and a reckless guy. But I think what we find out towards the end of the film is he's not. He's a little bit afraid. We learn more and more about him. But I think when you first meet him, you're like, who is this cool dude in these pretty amazing pajamas? Which I kind of own the same pajamas, so I was very into it. I do love pajamas. I don't know how he gets on and off of those pajamas. Like, do they not have a leg on the other side? Like, they're not mm. under the cat. How does that work? 
And he has this I don't itchy know. can't scratch and the look oh. on his face. But when the he's itchy dying can't scratch. scratch it. I mean, the itchy can't scratch is essentially him obsessed with, you know, finding something, you know, finding something better. I mean, it's like, again, it's so beautifully symbolic. It's like he can't get at this itch. What is that itch? You know, and he's constantly, you know, restless. It's true. And his whole idea, though, that he's like projecting this image of himself as like, I'm what a young man is. How much is that quietly set up when you see one of the couples that we don't see that much of in the film, the young married couple move into the apartment next door, the newlyweds? Mm. Because you watch this couple that he's pretending like he's trying to avoid, right? Yes. And they move in. And the man who's carrying his wife in, the man who's getting settled down and loves her, he is younger. He's stronger. He's handsomer. He looks more virile at that moment than Jimmy Stewart is. And I think even that is this deliberate contrast. Like, you're not who you think you are, Jimmy. You know, like, you're but not going to lose Yes, anything. but at the end, Jimmy kind of wins because what is she doing? Nagging him. She's <laughs> nagging him. I would never have married you. By the way, I missed the Hitchcock cameo in this. You did? did you, I did. I I did. I mean, I know where it is now at uh, about 25 minutes in the film. He's winding the clock in the songwriter's apartment. But I I think I was so kind of caught up in the film that I wasn't even looking for it. Uh, it just kind of just blew right by me. Um, oh, yeah. That's the first, yeah, first time I've ever missed a Hitchcock cameo. And I've I seen mean, this movie a couple of times. I, I didn't saw, even think he was in it. I, I saw, but I did want to, I did learn kind of a fun fact about the man who plays the composer. Oh, yes. Okay. So his name is Ross Bagdasarian. He actually did make music. He actually made music we have all heard. We have heard the band that he formed, produced. I know <gasps> this. I can't wait. Sound a little bit like this. They always stay home. They're always alone. I mean, by the way, he's the he's Dave. He is essentially Dave. That is Dave. I wanted him to end the movie by going, Jimmy! <laughs> so we have a slightly unusual special guest this week. Instead of a person talking about movies, we are going to talk about being alone. And we are going to talk about it with the expert of being alone. Her name is Lane Moore. She's a comedian. She's a creator of Tinder Live. She's a former editor over at Cosmopolitan Magazine. And she is the author of a book that came out last year. And it's called How to Be Alone, Even If You Want to and Even If You Don't. Lane Moore, say hello. And also, where are you talking to us from? For like a second, her like growl was happening. And I'm in the bath right now, so I'm loving it. <laughs> <laughs> That's I wonderful. Ride, but I'm in a purple bathtub right now. You're welcome. Um, maybe we it. should incorporate that into our advice for people. <laughs> I'm sure we will, so don't worry. <laughs> it sounds like you are the expert on how to take care of oneself and one's mood when you are alone. So, I mean, let's start by talking about that. I mean, can you tell us about your book and why you wrote it? So, I wanted to write a book um, that I, I really have not in the world, you know, I think like a lot of people, like if you don't see your story out there, you're like, oh, shit, am I supposed to be the one who tells this story? All right. Um, I came into this world very much on my own. I did not have the family you were supposed to have, and then subsequently did not have the friend group you were supposed to have. And, um, you know, I've learned uh, from my own work on myself and in the world that truly, if you did not have everything that you, you know, should have ideally had, coming from your family for whatever reason, um, it's 
sets up a lot of difficulty for the rest of your life to be able to uh, connect with people in a true way, to be able to attract safe people. It's like you really are kind of like embedded with this template through no fault of your own. So um, I really wanted to write uh, a book about how I spent my childhood alone and navigating the world that way and then navigating your teen years when you don't have the friends you're supposed to have and then navigating adulthood when you're like trying to find a partner and you might not be able to find that the same way your friends are because again, uh, you know, not for everybody, but for a lot of us, yeah, if we didn't get what we needed in childhood, getting what we need in adulthood fucking impossible. Well, right. I mean, because one of the things you're touching on is that lonely people can feel extra alone because we live in a culture where you're not supposed to be alone. You're supposed to be presenting all the time that everything's great and everything's fine. And I I mean, at least now it feels like we're in a moment where we can all have a real conversation about loneliness being a shared experience. It is, yeah, because, you know, it's it's so funny because, like, even when you said, like, lonely people, it's like, I bet if you ask the average person if they describe themselves as, like, lonely people, like, the idea is that, like, lonely people are this, like, mutant subsect of people. <laughs> and it's like, no, it's literally all of us. But, it, you know, if, if you were like, are you one of those lonely people? You'd be like, no. Well, you are. <laughs> we all are. It's okay. You're well, a- I mean, I, I think you could even argue that certain people feel alone in a group of crowded people. It's it's not just a, you know, you know, it's just not about being around people that makes you lonely. It's sort of like getting someone to, you know, I think to understand who you are. And sometimes you are your own best person to take care of yourself. You know, it's like, so I understand that, like that desire to be alone or because you know what you need that will put you in your best spot. You're not relying on other people to do it. Well, exactly. I mean, but I think that the thing is, too, is, like, sometimes I get people who, people post online and they're like, how to be alone? Oh, I need the opposite of that book. And I'm like, my dear, it is the opposite of that book. It is a book about realizing how to find connection in the world on your own terms. It is about trying to become your best friend and your biggest advocate. So for people who are having maybe more alone time than they're used to this week, you know, what are some kind of things people can be doing to you know, make that time work out, to figure out how to have communities and to be comfortable alone, how to feel as connected as possible and connected to themselves? I mean, it's, it's especially tough if you've never had that, um, if you've never been faced with that. I mean, so many of us, so many of us spend our lives running from ever having to truly be alone with our thoughts. Like, it's interesting. There's a lot of people I know who would class themselves as loners, but they're such escapists. Like, whatever it is, whether it's, like, you drink a lot or you're, like, constantly high. I'm not, I'm not judging any of these choices, but, like, because everybody's trying to survive. But, like, or, like, you know, they travel a lot. They don't have to be at home too much. Or whatever it is, like, there are so many ways that we run from ourselves. And I think one interesting thing about this time is that most of us can't do that right now. Uh, I find great, great solace in um, watching my favorite TV shows. I've always been a huge um, thing for me. I get really, really into a TV show, and it kind of feels like the people on that show are my family or, like, my friends, and I'm, like, hanging out with them. And to the point where, like, I'll watch, like, six seasons or something and then be like, hey, we're starting over because I don't want to leave. So, get buckled up. You know, in talking about Rear Window, 
you watch this person who gets obsessed about what's going on in the outside world. And he is alone to a certain extent. He has a, you know, a very small friend group. But do you find that in a world of social media that you can get kind of caught up in that same kind of rabbit hole where, uh, yes, you are alone, but you are looking out at other people as well? Or is that something that you kind of just don't even care about? I think we talk a lot about the fact that, you know, it, it, it's very, very cliche now to say, like, man, we're, we're more connected than ever, but we're lonelier than ever. But, like, nobody ever really tries to think about why that is. People just kind of, like, hang it on the hook of social media and then they walk away. And I'm like, no, there's something else to explore there. When you're a kid, if you're, like, not on, if you're not on social media, if you're not on stuff, before social media, I guess we'll say, you assume that your life was like everybody else's. That's kind of like just what kids do innately. You're just like, oh, everyone is dealing with the same stuff that I'm dealing with. We all have the same home life. We're all like the same. We all have the same amount of money, whatever. Unless you're told otherwise, you assume everyone's like you. Social media has done this thing where there's this pressure to be really performative, for sure. You have all these people who are performing what they think they're supposed to. So, like, now, if you don't have, like, the family that you feel like you're supposed to have or the connection with your family that you really want to have, you go on social media and you're, like, especially on the holidays, there's an entire chapter in how to be a lot of surviving major holidays. Um, but you go on there and you're, like, oh, everyone else has a perfect family because look at these photos. Oh, everyone else has, like, the perfect partner. Look at these photos. Oh, everyone else has the dream life, the dream whatever. Like, you have this model that seems to be showing you that you have nothing and everybody else has everything because now you have like actual people to compare yourself to like hundreds of years ago, like the average per these number of people that you like faces that you would see every day with like two. And now it's like in the thousands, like we have so many more ways to compare ourselves to people. We all just want to feel normal. And a lot of those people posting these like perfect lives absolutely do not have them. I know it for a fact. So um, I take a lot of comfort in that. I do have one last question because you have a second level of experience in what we're about to face, which is you have been a writer who works for home for a very, very long time. So I'm wondering yeah. if you have any tips for people day to day, how to make the best use of their house. Like I, for me, I can say one thing I did is I've already reorganized my closets and I am now a person as of this week who makes her bed every day just so I'm liking being in my house better. What are your tips? Yes, no, the, the maker bed thing is, like, decadent. And what's funny is it's kind of like doing dishes. It takes, like, three seconds, but it feels like it's going to take an hour, and it really doesn't. I eat, I try to eat, wow, you know, at regular times. It's like I kind of just do the best I can, but I know that, like, I feel better when I, like, actually will put on an outfit that I think is cute. I don't always have, like, the energy mentally or physically to do those things, so I just try to be super understanding uh, when I can't do those things. And I guess my general advice would be, like, whatever you feel comfortable doing is the right way. I don't know. I kind of hate rules. I don't really like, <laughs> I don't really like people telling me the one right way to do things, so I think uh, my main rule is just be like, hey, if you work all day in your pajamas and you look like trash, great. Uh, it's like... Whatever you have energy to do is, is enough. That's what I think. Fair enough. Although I, I will say, that. what am I? I've decided I'm going to wear lipstick in my house every day just because. Right, exactly. <laughs> I think that I think that that's it. I premiered a live streaming 
talk show last night called How to Be Alone, and it's going to be every single night at 8 p.m. on Twitch. For me, I was like, I need to perform, and I need to feel connected with people, and I know that, like, people, like, this is the way I can be connected with people in, in a safe way. So I had the idea to do a live streaming talk show because, like, this way it's interactive. And, again, like, who of all people could, like, shepherd people through <laughs> sort of being alone? So last night, uh, the first episode, um, I started it off by doing, like, kind of a check-in and being like, how is everybody doing? So you can, like, write in the chat window, like, how is everyone doing? Like, how is impacting everybody? Reminding people to drink water, reminding people to have snacks by them, like, you know, things that I'm reminding myself, trying to do it in a group setting, I think, gives people permission to, like, oh, that's right. I'm supposed to, like, take care of myself through this. We ended up uh, ending with, um, like, I answered some people's questions about loneliness and, like, coping with isolation. And then we ended with, I was like, oh, we should do karaoke. And so I ended up singing Semi-Sonic Closing Time, and it was, like, weirdly resonant. Um, <laughs> but it was, like, really beautiful. And, and, like, all these people from, like, around the world, I saw so many messages that were, like, I felt less alone through this than, like, I have in a while. I'm not literally what I wanted to do through the show. And it's every night. So if, if people, as long as this lasts, like I'm around we're all stuck inside I figured you know you've run out of streaming stuff let's we can be alone together basically (laughs) I love that at least we do have more ways to be connected even though we're apart well Lanemore tell people where they can find you it's been really lovely chatting yeah it's been wonderful um so uh, my Instagram handle is at hello Lanemore and that's also my Twitter um there's also uh, Instagram for Tinder Live that's at Tinder Live. Hopefully I'll be on tour with that once this is over. Um, and then the How to Be Alone show is twitch.tv uh, slash how to be alone official. And yeah, you can just find all the things on one of those. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Lane, have Perfect. a good evening. Thank you for keeping us company. Well, thank you so much, Lane Moore, for giving us some good tips on how to be alone, and we'll definitely uh, watch you on Twitch. Uh, I mean, I want to play board games with Lane. I mean, she technically is not alone because she seems like she has a lot of people telling her and hanging out with her every night. So I'm excited about that. that. By the way, Paul, do you have any tips for how you're going to handle being alone? I mean, I got my lipstick. I got, you know, my my clean-ass house. What about you? Amy, I'm never alone. I'm surrounded <laughs> by uh, two children, a three and a five-year-old. People are like, oh my gosh, I get to watch movies and and uh, and clean my house. I, I'm like, I'm working 14 hours a day here, 6.30 to 7 uh, to 8 o'clock at night. I'm, I'm homeschooling kids. Uh, I'm going on walks. We're going on bike rides, social distancing, of course, watching a lot of American Ninja Warrior Jr. Uh, it is not relaxing. I am I'm going to need a vacation from my quarantine. <laughs> You know, I will confess at this point, we actually had to pause the recording of this midway through of this podcast because I can vouch that Paul's kids were outside the door jumping on bubble wrap. Yes, my kids are finding a lot of things to do in the house that are not toys. Uh, It's great. (laughs) Uh, Amy, is there Simpsons? Uh, I mean, I, I can only imagine there are so many Simpsons for this. 
There is. It is called Bart of Darkness. It, what happens in here is that the Simpsons get a pool. Bart hurts himself in the pool. He's stuck in his in his bedroom, really, really bored, with a disassembled telescope. He looks into the window next door, and he actually sees Jimmy Stewart looking back over at us. Grace, come here. There's a sinister-looking kid I want you to see. Oh, I'm never, ever going to see anything interesting with this stupid piece of junk. like this is flanders we're talking about that's a perfect clip now i know amy since we started this podcast you said to me time and time again disturbia needs to be on the afi list and i said well no (laughs) just hold up hold up we need to watch rear window first and and i know you said i won't have it i need my shia on the list shia 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 and i said i don't even know if that's the best shia and you said it is disturbia (laughs) is the movie i want on the list and i asked you numerous times please watch rear window now that you have does rear window belong on this list well, it is no Disturbia, but that said, I mean, is it weird that this might be my favorite Hitchcock? I feel like every time I see a Hitchcock for this list, I come out of it like, this is now my favorite Hitchcock. This is now my favorite Hitchcock. I feel Hitchcock. the same. I mean, I the same. I, to be honest, when you look at the way that Hitchcock's films are ranked on here, and I'll do them in order, Vertigo is number nine, Psycho is number 16, North by Northwest is number 55, and Rear Window is right above it at 48. This might sound like heresy, but I think Rear Window is much better than Psycho. It is great the entire way through. The second half of Psycho is so I boring. I agree. Rewatching Psycho and looking at it compared to the other films on this list, it's a great movie. It has one of the most memorable scenes in film history, but I don't know if it's a, the best Hitchcock. And we're talking about Hitchcock, who has so four films on this list. I could lose Psycho. I could definitely put this above Psycho. But I'm also thinking... Is there another Hitchcock that we're not thinking of on this list? Uh, Time Magazine famously said that this is the second most interesting or engaging Hitchcock film since 39 Steps. They think that that's the number one. I don't know if I agree with that, but, you know, and I look at this list and I think about Rope often and then I look, oh, well, Lifeboat's fantastic and that's amazing too. And, you know, Dial in for Murder is perfect and The Man Who Knew Too Much and you know, the, the Birds. I mean, well, Birds, I don't know if I love love, but there's so many great films. I mean, my God. I mean, the fact that this is, what did I say at the beginning? It's like his 42nd film he ever made. He made 42nd films before this. There's so much Hitchcock I would want to put on this list. You know, I mean, you know that I love my saboteur. I love so many things. I love The Lady Vanishes. Uh, but maybe if family just, plot is the one that you always say yes, is your favorite all the time. Yeah. But really, maybe we just need one, possibly two. Perfect Hitchcocks. I have to say, I feel a little yes. bit bummed that the two that we have that I would 1,000% keep, which would be um, Vertigo in this one, that mm-hmm. they're so close together relatively in his very, very long career. It doesn't make me feel I like know. we represent the arc of him, but it does make me feel like we represent him at his most romantic and him at his most intelligent but fun. Because I don't I'm think this movie you... is just popcorn compared to it. I think this movie no. is as smart as Vertigo. I just think it's in a different tone. If I'm going to be forced to pick two, I think for variety's sake, I would take Vertigo because it's so uh, beautifully shot and it's very dark and deep. And then I would take 
North by Northwest oh, only really? because because that movie kind of sets the tone for I think summer blockbusters and popcorn. And this movie yeah. kind of falls in between. This movie is incredibly engaging and fun and smart, but it's not like as big and popcorny as the other one. And I think that there is something about like showing those two sides. If that's I'm again, I don't want to make this decision. I'm just saying if I had to, I would show that side of Hitchcock and then the most artistic Hitchcock, in my opinion, uh, which is Vertigo. I mean, it is so interesting how he just keeps doing the opposite of what he just did so well, right? Like yeah. here he makes this brilliant claustrophobic, you know, thriller. And then he's like, what if I made a thriller that's gigantic and all huge open set pieces? What if I take the show on the road, right? Because there's I almost know. that that film travels so much in North by Northwest. Or even as an opposite, like, what if I make a murder thriller with no blood? at all. And then what if I go from there to Psycho, which is all shock and blood and and things that I left out of this one. He doesn't I can ever honestly the same say I can honestly say that uh, and as much as I was making a joke that has similarities to Vertigo, it's a very different film obviously, but there are themes that I think Hitchcock revisits same way like Stephen King I think revisits themes and sometimes even full stories. But um there will never be a director as prolific as and and as wide in scope as Hitchcock, you know, I I as we've now gone through this list, I I can't see anyone else that comes close to Hitchcock with the uh, with the amount of films and the varied nature of them um, and the legacy behind them. You know, it's it's really always a treat to find one of his films. Right. I mean, who are the heavy hitters when we narrow it down? Right. It's like Hitchcock, Spielberg, Kubrick. And Kubrick, you know, is up there as far as quality, but not as much as like the amount of films, but definitely the varied nature of his films. Spielberg probably is the biggest, you know, and look, Hitchcock knew it. He was afraid of him after he saw Jaws. He didn't want to meet him. He felt embarrassed. You know, um, I guess Spielberg is probably the one. Yeah. I didn't think about that. Spielberg yeah. is definitely the one. I think it's Spielberg and Hitchcock. And it's really interesting uh, to put those two people up there that, you know, they can go back and forth between making things that are very artistic and very personal to things that are incredibly popcorny. Um, and I feel like Spielberg has moved away from the popcorn uh, and is kind of occasionally pulled back in. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I'm, I, I like this idea. I don't think I've ever thought of them as partners like that. No, you're right. And I think it is hard to, to figure out the modern day people that we think can stand up to this. I mean, to which I almost have to ask, and I feel bad asking this. Did you see the 1998 remake of Rear Window? The one with Christopher Reeve. Yeah, this one. Here, let's take a listen to the trailer. Yeah. After a tragic accident, Jason Kemp is coming home. I know you'll make something good out of all this. You always do. To his new life. Hi, Claudia Henderson. Oh, God, I'm so sorry. You've been working on my project, keeping it warm for me. Well, I hope I've been doing a little more than that. Actually, I hope you haven't. To friendly neighbors. See that blonde down there? Wait back there for me. And a killer view. Ah! What? But the more he looks, Gimme. the more he suspects. She's not there. Something's happened. Something's happened to her. His neighbor is hiding. I think he killed her last night. A dark secret. You've been spying on me. I mean, I love the concept. It's a great concept. I remember watching it when I was a kid because I was a big Christopher Reeve fan. 
Right? I mean, it's very cool casting to be like, here is a role that is perfect for you. It gets yeah. it gets a lot more. I think because it was really Christopher Reeve's first film back, like his first major comeback, the film had to spend a lot of time talking about things like, what is it like when you are paralyzed? It kind of almost had to take you behind the scenes to see his character's recovery to let us see his recovery. Yeah. You know, so yeah. it's 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 much of a, more of a shaggier kind of 90s style erotic looking thriller. I would argue, Amy, that this movie is exactly what Rear Window is talking about, which is we want to be voyeuristic. We want to see what is it like to be Christopher Reeve. And that's the reason why we made this movie, because it's fascinating to be like, oh, what is his life like? And it's not a good movie or it's, I mean, I remember it not being like a great movie, but it's sort of like that idea that we want that. We want that. We want to see it. We want that, in, you know, and then you make it entertaining. But I think that there's an element to that. Fair enough. Well, I will say, Paul, that all of the critics at the time pretty much loved Rear Window. The most negative thing I could find was from the oh, middle yeah. of a rave. This is the middle of a rave from uh, Bosley Crowther of the New York Times, who we have a lot. He liked the film, but he did have one key caveat right in the middle. He said, you know what? Mr. Hitchcock's film is not significant. What it has to say about people and human nature is superficial and glib. But it does expose mm. many facets of the loneliness of city life, and it tacitly demonstrates the impulse of morbid curiosity. The purpose of it is sensation. I would say okay. I think this film is deeper than he gives it credit for. I totally agree. I mean, I think we just spent an hour and a half talking about exactly that. You know, that, but I think the idea is, you know, uh, to each their own. You know, in the moment you see it and you feel like maybe you're only getting the male gaze part of it and you're not seeing how, what else it's saying, the symbolism of it. I think that's very much how I saw the film, probably until recently, honestly. Yeah, no. Honestly, so it's been uh, it's, a pleasure it, to revisit it. Absolutely. I mean, I, I'm surprised at how much I enjoyed it. And uh, Amy, that brings us to the end of Rear Window. Next week, we're going back on track to 12 Angry Men. We already uh, laid down a question for you there, and a lot of you did call in with it. So we're not even going to give you another call to action. We'll just kind of uh, play those calls next week. And uh, I'm excited to talk about 12 Angry Men. I Gosh, feel like that's. I wonder uh, if people would pick you know, Thornwald as a person they could defend. Ooh. <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe. We never met his mistress, so we don't know. Uh, Terrible, terrible uh, justification. If his mistress was good enough, then it would be okay. Uh, All right. Well, Amy, we'll see you next week for 12 Angry Men. 